I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 15. And as we find that section of the Word of God, let us seek the face of the God of the Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray in the spirit of the psalmist that you would go forth indeed and you would grant victories for Jacob, victories in this place, victories around the world, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the sword of the spirit is unsheathed and where it is is wielded deftly, we, we pray that you would slay the enmity in men's hearts against the goodness of the God to whom they, who are offered salvation from his hand. We pray that the kingdom of God would be extended in the earth The Lord Jesus would ride upon his horse and go conquering and to conquer. And he would make thousands of hearts his own. That the kingdom of God would be extended in the earth. It would be expanded in the hearts of your people. Lord, give us ears to hear. Did not the Lord Jesus himself, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, we don't naturally have hearing ears. And we pray that you would touch our ears. You would open the ear canal of our souls, that we might hear the voice of the shepherd calling to us, and that he might feed us with manna from on high. He would send his spirit into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. He would give us that delight in your word that we, even as we prayed before, might take delight in it, running in the way of your commandments. Enlarge our hearts so to do. Be with us in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The parable of the lost or prodigal son divides neatly into three sections viewed from the perspective of its three leading actors. The lost son, the waiting father, and the disgruntled brother. Last Lord's Day we began considering the lost son. And his story, too, may be divided into three scenes. Last time we pondered his determinative request. We saw that it arose from his wandering heart. He wasn't pleased living under his father's roof. It led to estrangement from his father. And this estrangement from his father was rooted in disaffection toward his father and discontent with his father's rules. And then we saw that it resulted in his departure from his father's house. And we noted that he had time to reconsider his decision before he left. But then we saw that he left his father's observation and influence. This morning we come to consider his licentious lifestyle very unhappy section in this boy's life, but the Lord Jesus has it recorded for us. So let's read Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 16. Or excuse me, 11 
through 16. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. And there we'll stop our reading this morning. This young man's departure from his good and godly home set into motion a grievous chain of events that we're going to consider this morning. This morning we're going to observe the broad outlines of this young man's degenerate life. Apostasy from God and departure from home often leads to miserable wretchedness and moral degradation. We've seen his determinative decision in verses 11 through 13, the beginning of verse 13. Now consider his licentious lifestyle in verses 13b through 16 that I just read in our hearing. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And that's what this young man did. He separated himself from his father, his father's influence, the blessings of living in a Christian home, seeking his own desire. And in so doing, he quarreled. He argued with all sound wisdom. So as we consider this young man's licentious lifestyle, we're going to look at it under two headings, and then we're going to come to a few words of concluding application. But as we sit here this morning, I don't want us to be looking at other people. This word is for us. We are to look at ourselves, because in our heart is the same kind of rebellion against God that found its full measure in the life of this young man. So if we think that this story is about someone else, we are missing the message. So notice, first of all, his degenerate behavior, this one who separated himself seeking his own desire and quarreled against all sound wisdom. This prodigal's departure into sin is a living exegesis of Solomon's words. 
Notice his degenerate lifestyle, verse 13. And there, that is, in a distant country, he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't give us all the details. If we know our own hearts, we know the pathways that this boy would have followed. The Bible admonishes the young, especially young men, against pursuing youthful lusts. Indeed, Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. These things wage war against our souls. Solomon warns his naive young sons against the very sins into which this young man, and perhaps you and perhaps myself, he plunged himself. His father, no doubt, would have appealed to him with the words of the wise king. Look in your Bibles, if you don't have the notes before you, at Proverbs chapter 5 and the first 13 verses. Proverbs 5. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge. There's the general counsel. Here's the specific application. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Oh, are they sweet to a carnal soul. And smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien." And you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. Solomon teaches, and this young man experienced the truth, that a young man's lust will enslave him. The Bible sternly warns us against indulging in sin's pleasures. It cautions us about sin's cost. Indulging sin's forbidden pleasure always, sooner or later, brings pain and loss. Because this young man turned a deaf ear to his father's faithful warnings, he would pay the piper and he would pay him handsomely. When the young prodigal left home for the far country, to put it in modern terminology, he didn't see, seek out fellowship in a good church. 
when Demas left the apostle Paul and went to Thessalonica, I have no doubt he didn't go to that church. He didn't seek out a a good church with faithful shepherds to watch over his soul. Instead, when he entered the far country, he entered upon a course in which, notice what Jesus says, he squandered his estate. From a purely legal standpoint, he was free to live like a drunken sailor. It was now his estate. Yet he was under no moral right before God or before his father to waste his heritage. You see, as long as his father lived, he was accountable to him for the prudent use of his inheritance. But this young man cared nothing about the claims of God or his father upon him. No, he would have joined the rising chorus of those today who loudly assert their individual freedom and their personal rights, who contend that no one has any claim upon the way that they use their resources, their talents, their time, or their bodies. You see, prodigals poo-poo any idea of restrictions to their freedom. You see, they live to serve themselves, period. This lawless spirit prevails across our nation. To speak of personal accountability, of a responsible stewardship of our possessions, our talents, our vocation, the way we train our children, the use of our bodies, the stewardship of our very souls is rigorously rejected across America. That's chiefly the reason we're in the mess that we're in. Not because of financial mismanagement in high places. That may be an expression of this squandering lifestyle. But the roots are here in the heart. Shrill voices demand that we are accountable to no one. Not even to ourselves. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are not our own. We belong to God. We are accountable to him. Adam tried to convince himself that that he was a free moral agent. He chose to eat the forbidden fruit as his right. Incident after incident in the life of the Old Testament. The people of Israel bear sad witness to the nation's rejection of divine ownership and personal accountability. Similarly, Americans increasingly regard unrestricted freedom, or maybe I should say anarchy, as a sacred right. Personal autonomy is the God of most of our countrymen, and sadly, many professing Christians. Jesus says this young prodigal squandered his estate with loose living. The word for loose living means exactly what it says. It means to live senselessly or recklessly. As one man writes, he went the limit of his sinful excess. He took it to the limit, as the song goes. He kicked the traces. He broke free 
of all moral restraints. He ground the righteous influence of his father under his heels and pursued sinful pleasures with abandon. He found that to the carnal tongue, stolen water is sweet. He may have even descended to the level where, as Solomon says in in Proverbs chapter 2, and I think about verses 14 or 18, he speaks about those who rejoice, not just in evil, but rejoice in the perversity of evil, the twistedness of it. But there was one thing this young prodigal didn't bargain for, that his sin would turn bitter in his belly. So dazzled was he by the world's glitter and glitz, so excited to explore forbidden pleasures that he failed to read the danger signs of such a life, that the way of transgressors is hard, that stern discipline awaits him who forsakes the way of righteousness. He didn't see that there'd be a reckoning coming. And that's the way sin is. We don't see what it's going to bring into our lives. We're just living for the here and now, just for the experience of the sensations and pulsations of our senses. You see, prodigals never anticipate the bitter fruit of their sin. They don't care to think that the wild roller coaster of sensual gratification will one day come to an abrupt halt. Partying lasts only so long before the money runs out and the cheap friends run off. Sin leeches life from the soul, often ruining the body in the process while it destroys the mind. Imagine, Sam, you've seen something of that even on the college campus. As young as these people are, they're plunging themselves into sin in the name of freedom. But they don't see that they're chaining their souls. Sin, especially sensual sin, is no friend, but it is our worst enemy. That's why the Bible continually warns us against it. Sensual sin shows no mercy. It gives no quarter. It chews us up and spits us out. Little did this young man know that his lust would eat away like cancer, rotting his very soul. Sin is the great liar. It promises us pleasure, but delivers pain, offering fulfillment while putting us on the road to ruin. Sin binds with chains stronger than iron. It hides traps. Solomon writes in Proverbs 4 and verse 19, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They think they see things so clearly. The very things they pursue trip them up. Sin sets a snare, and the foolish run headlong into it. 
The example of this young prodigal teaches us that hell is not the only place where God punishes sinners. He begins punishing men in this life by giving them over to the power of their sin. In fact, by committing sexual sin, men and women have a hand in their own punishment. This is why Paul warns us, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, or I would say woman as well, sins against his own body. He sins against himself and against his body. And he ravages himself in the process. That's 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. You see, sin is never content until it has us in its clutches. Then it seeks to destroy us. The pursuit of this sin is like an avalanche. It starts out as a little slide, but by the time it's over, it has scoured the hillside, denuding it, destroying everything in its path. Once there were trees, now there's nothing but rocks. Temptations to sexual sin are not unlike the steep hill which tempted the little boy on his bicycle who wanted to ride like the wind. His father had warned him many times, but the careless lad was heedless of his dad's warning. One day he rode too close to the crest of the hill and gravity took over. It got hold of his bicycle, and so down the hill he went faster and faster, flying out of control, and finally, at the bottom, he smashed into a car. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Unmortified sexual sin will ruin us. Many other sins have slain their thousands. This sin has slain its ten thousands. Paul in Romans chapter 1 testifies to the spiraling downward effect of this sin. The more sexual sin takes hold of a person's heart, the more he is deceived and brought under its cruel, mesmerizing, soul-destroying power. And God will give impenitent prodigals their desire. If they continue to suppress the knowledge of him in unrighteousness, if they continue to trample his law, if they continue to stiff arm the offers of his mercy in the gospel, he will justly give them over to the power of their sin. What happened to Gentile nations happens to ungodly individuals. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever." 
They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature. That's what we see. We see body worship in our day, do we not? And the downward momentum increases. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Boy, do we see this today. What was committed in darkness and back streets is now paraded on Main Street. What was done in the darkness is now done in the light. And what was snickered about as sin is promoted as righteousness today. Some of you are old enough to remember that the thought of Libraries hosting these, what are they? Men dressed up as women, flamboyantly colored, with all kinds of hideous war paint, reading to children, sitting at their feet, and parents approving it. Finally, when the impenitent have drunk their fill of idolatry and immorality, God will give them over to moral insanity. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they they didn't want anything to do with God. Get him out of the public sphere. Get him out of your mind. Get him out of your churches. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. In fact, some prodigals become cheerleaders. Cardinal cheerleaders, immoral missionaries in the promotion of their vices. Verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God, these things are written upon their heart. They can't get away from God. That those who practice such things, they know the ordinance of God. They're worthy of death. They not only do the same, they don't repent. But also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You see, this misery loves company. They want to get everybody on board with them. This young man descended into the depths of depravity. 
And such is often the tragic history of young persons who abandon the good and gracious restraints of godly parental love. I have witnessed this as a dorm parent in a Christian college. Various students, some raised in godly Christian homes, pull out all the stops when they get out from underneath their parents' watchful eye. Invigorated by newfound freedom, they bust loose when they get to college. Some experimented and and dabbled in sin. Others delved deeper. A few left college to pursue the wider ways of this wicked world. Some are still there. I know of them. But bless God, some have repented and are now living God-glorifying Christian lives. But some put down roots in the far country and they are there still. That's tragic. This prodigal was yet on his way to the bottom. Things didn't turn out according to his plan. Abandoned by his partners in crime and shackled by his sin, he soon found himself disillusioned. You see, he had sown the wind and now he had reaped the whirlwind. Deserted by his friends and seemingly abandoned by God, the Lord was yet working behind the scenes to bring this young man to his senses and to himself as God. God demonstrates his wisdom by sometimes allowing us sufficient rope to tangle our feet, but in his mercy, not length enough to strangle our souls. That is, if we are his elect. But we don't know that in the midst of our sin. He allows us to hit bottom before we are ready for him to lift us up. So that's his degenerate behavior. Consider more briefly his destitute condition in verses 14 through 16. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Remember, this young man left home with stars in his eyes. A quest for unrestrained freedom filled his sails. Little did he expect that he'd become shipwrecked upon the rocks of his own lusts. You see, over time, the partying and playing lost its charm. Pleasure was giving way to pain. Party-hardy friends whom he thought were genuine and would stick with him through thick and thin now are nowhere to be found. He's penniless. He's hungry. The world's glitter and glitz have tarnished before his eyes. The grim realities of a wasted life begin to set in. And he's finding out that sin always fails to make good on his promises. Seeking freedom from righteousness only leads to moral bondage. 
This young man believed himself the master of his fate and the captain of his soul, and now he has become captive to his own lusts. You see, he expected his bankroll or his inheritance to bankroll his quest for happiness. His money did buy him friends, if you want to call mooching companions friends. It did buy him love, if you want to call friend, fellowship in sin love. When he returned home, his elder brother would accuse him of devouring his father's wealth with harlots. His brother's evaluation, though terse, was likely true. You see, the real tragedy is that this young man bartered his soul and wasted his body to buy a cheap counterfeit of the genuine affection and happiness that he left back home. His father's pure and principled love had been his daily portion. This he cast off in favor of the fickle affections of false friends and loose women. You see, he learned that lust is a liar. It promises what it can never deliver. Sin can never produce joy, peace, and a good conscience. You see, when his money ran out, his companions ran off. How tragic to exchange true freedom for bondage and genuine love so freely given for false affection, so costly and so transient. Poof, it's gone. This young man's money failed to buy him forgetfulness of his father and his home. He so wanted to get out from underneath his father's control. He wanted to get his father out of his mind. He so wanted to burn his, his memory, that memory of a concerned dad whose very eyes seemed to probe the depths of his soul. He so wanted to deafen his ears to the echo of his father's firm but tender voice instructing him in the way of righteousness to get out of his mind his earnest pleadings and entreating, entreaties and loving reproofs. He would have none of it. Where did it lead him? His money failed to purchase true freedom. He wasted his money in ruining his health and in searing his conscience. He was now beginning to see that life without moral restraint and without godly guidance is slavery and not freedom, that giving vent to his passions is the cruelest form of bondage. He found that the heart in which he had once trusted had betrayed him. When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. He hadn't hit bottom yet. He didn't say, well, money's run out, there's no food, I'm going to go back home. He's not ready for that yet. You think he would be, but that's how deceiving and powerful sin is. God must bring him still lower. 
You see, he danced himself dizzy until the music abruptly stopped. Now it was time to finance the fiddler. With his money all spent and to preserve himself from starvation, this young man was reduced to the most menial of occupations, slopping hogs. You see, this would have been an undesirable job for any man, but especially despicable it was for a Jew because the Mosaic law forbade contact with pigs. But why not feed pigs, really? If breaking greater commandments, like the seventh commandment especially, is so easy, why not lesser regulations as well? And so this young man descended from dining at his father's sumptuous table to feeding pigs and eating with them their food. Do we not see a not-so-subtle twist of irony here? This young man chose to live like swine. He gorged himself on forbidden pleasures, living like a beast and an unclean one at that. But God had a lesson in this. The prodigal quickly found sin as nourishing to his soul as pig food was to his body. God allowed him to hit the bottom in the moral cesspool to awaken him to its stench, the stench of his sin and his need for forgiveness from God and his Father. Next week, God willing, we shall ponder the happy theme of this young man's decisive repentance. But let us close today by noting some important lessons taught by this young man's pathetic pilgrimage from the place of privilege at home to swilling sin, from happiness to misery in the far country. The overall lesson from our study today is that sin, especially sexual sin, is utterly incapable of granting us true freedom and happiness and a good conscience. And the reasons for this are many. First of all, sin's pleasures are temporary. We read in the book of Hebrews about the passing pleasures of sin. We see it in this boy's life. You see, sin's pleasures never last. It cannot satisfy our craving for substantial, lasting happiness and peace and a conscience void of offense. Indulging sexual sin is like a man adrift in a lifeboat who attempts to quench his raging thirst with seawater. The more he drinks, the thirstier he becomes, and finally he drinks himself to death. Gratifying lust may satisfy for the moment, but the more it is indulged, the less pleasure it gives. Soon it parches our soul. Indeed, this is true for all intemperate persons. Just ask the drunk. 
Is he a happy man? Or the compulsive gambler? Does he have a good conscience? Ask the playboy. Is it really worth it all? This chasing skirts? Sowing your wild oats across the country? Ask the viewer of pornography. Does it really bring pleasure? I mean substantial, lasting pleasure. Ask the fornicator and adulterer. Is their life happy? Brethren, sin's pleasure never satisfies. Such pleasures are temporary and they're unfulfilling. Furthermore, sin's pleasures quickly turn sour. Lust promises pleasure but delivers only pain. You see, brethren, we cannot abuse the good gift of sex intended to be enjoyed only between a a man and a woman married to each other without dire consequences. The steps lead down to Sheol. It's one way. Unless God rescues us. Just ask the promiscuous young man or woman fidgeting nervously in a doctor's office awaiting STD or pregnancy test results. Ask them whether the momentary pleasure is worth the present pain. Ask the bleary-eyed college student with a throbbing hangover, if true peace and happiness is found in a bottle. You see, sin that is sweet in the mouth turns bitter in the belly. Thirdly and finally, sin can never satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. It cannot because we are made in the image of a holy God. Because we are not animals, we will never find satisfaction in living like beasts. Even beasts know better than to live like some humans. Material things and physical pleasures cannot satisfy soul hunger for spiritual intercourse with the living God. Augustine knew this by personal experience. He left the home of his godly mother to live without restraint in the far country. And there he found the emptiness and bondage of living to gratify his lusts. Later, he wrote as a converted man these words. You have created us, speaking of God, you have created us for yourself And our heart cannot be quieted until it finds its rest in you. If you're a Christian, especially one who's been saved from something of a life like this, you know of what he says. You're seeking love in all the wrong places. Pleasure. Now you found since you've come to Christ and you've closed with him. God who created us in his image 
has made us for fellowship with him. That's true life. That's abundant life. That's eternal life. But our depravity makes us crave and worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The pursuit of sin can never fill the vacuum God has created in our soul. It must be filled with him and him alone. Not sin. Not even a spouse. Not a dream job. Not anything but him. All of these other things are blessings. But he must be the chief blessing. Because he is the blesser. All these other things are blessings for which we thank God. Well, bless God that his grace is greater than our sin. And we will see next time that this prodigal's sin did not put him beyond God's reach. His arm is long enough to grasp the most abject sinner running far from him. It's able to reach him in the far country and to bring him home. And this hopeful truth we will explore next Lord's Day, God willing. May God in his almighty love and mercy rescue any here who is wandering in or contemplating a journey into the far country. Let us pray. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Oh Lord, here's our heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That is our prayer. Lord, we were born with prodigal hearts. And many of us have satisfied them with sin and found that sin never truly satisfying. But Lord, you have satisfied our hearts with living water from Jesus Christ. We fed upon manna from heaven, even the Lord Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. But yet even now, these things in the world tempt us. The hike skirt grabs our attention. All of these things that would turn us out of the path of righteousness and the way of true happiness and of fulfillment. Lord, make these things to be ugly to us as they are ugly to you, that we might find Jesus beautiful and we would pursue him running with grace, hard after the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let none of us be satisfied until that describes our life and indeed points to a a wonderful legacy in his presence forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.